The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. passage for this morning. So if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 12 through 25 for us this morning. After this, meaning the turning of the water to wine at Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house, a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Good morning. In 1958, Chinese leaders had just launched the Great Leap Forward. It was a movement that aimed to boost the economy through large industrial and agricultural changes. One of the first campaigns to be launched in this new initiative was called the Four Pests Campaign. You might have heard of this before. Uh, Leader Mao Zedong, uh, the leader of of Communist China at the time, initiated the campaign after concluding that four pests, uh, mosquitoes, flies, Rats and sparrows were blighting crops, and they they needed to be eliminated. So the motivation behind this act was to grow the crops, that the rice fields would become more abundant and meet the needs of the millions and millions and millions of people in China. Uh, Sparrows were especially blamed for their love of eating grain seeds. With this conclusion... 
the population was called upon to kill these pests. Scarecrows and red flags were put up to frighten away the sparrows, while firing zones were set up for shooting the sparrows. One citizen recorded in his diary that people banged their gongs, drums, wash basins, and anything else that could make loud noises. The sparrows were forced to keep flying until they dropped dead from exhaustion. However, after thousands of sparrows were killed, the crops started dwindling rather than increasing. By 1960, scientists had discovered that sparrows' diets were composed of three-quarters insects and only one-quarter grains. So Mao replaced the sparrow with bedbugs on the list of four pests in hopes of improving the situation. But it was too late. Without sparrows around, locust populations multiplied and decimated the fields. Things became so dire that the government imported sparrows from the Soviet Union to fight the plague. The combination of locusts, pesticide misuse, and deforestation led to the Great Chinese Famine, in which over 30 million people died of starvation. Welcome to church. <laughs> so what happened? Mao violated a crucial law of nature that would become to known as the law of unintended consequences. The law of unintended consequences states that intervening in a complex system can create unforeseen outcomes, which may or may not be desirable. There's a few possible outcomes, one of which is known as a perverse result, which is when an intended solution makes the problem worse, not better. So, whenever we perform an action to achieve an end, an outcome occurs. But the events that play out might not happen the way that we expect them to or anticipate. Just as killing off the sparrows led to a famine, a well-meaning act can result in a result that's not anticipated. And this is where the law of unintended consequences comes in. Enter Jesus here in this scene in John 2 at the temple. God's people had been celebrating Passover at the temple for years. Each year they would bring their best animal to sacrifice to Yahweh as a symbol of God's judgment on their sin and forgiveness of it. But along the way, something shifted. God's law in the Old Testament didn't state exactly or explicitly where the animal had to come from. It didn't prohibit the sale of an animal for the purpose of sacrifice at the temple, at least not explicitly. And many Jews had to travel a long, long ways to get to Jerusalem for Passover. Rearing and raising animals was common in the ancient Near East, but having to transport your most perfect, clean, unblemished little lamb for days on end through this arduous, difficult, taxing journey and to keep it clean in the process was really difficult. And so... Over time, God's people grew more comfortable 
with making things convenient for the weary traveler. They begin selling animals at the temple. Initially, even outside the temple in the Old Testament, we see stories of them selling outside of the temple, just outside of it. And here, we see now it's compromised to the point of selling in the temple gates. Their purpose was to see worship to Yahweh made easier, made better. But the question that we see Jesus address is this. What are the unintended consequences of making worship more convenient? What happens when Israel makes worship convenient and reduces it down to a week-long event or a moment on the altar when the animal is sacrificed? Jesus gets out the whip. That's what happens. So the desire to make worshiping God more manageable for the pilgrim coming to Jerusalem isn't inherently wrong, but the unintended consequences led to a perverse result where worship actually devolved into dead ritual. So they robbed themselves of the very thing that they set out to make better. Okay. How's that for an introduction? Woo! You with me? Last week, we saw Jesus bring cleansing to the wedding feast at Cana. Um, He turns water into wine. Specifically, he has the servants at this wedding fill up these jars, these purification jars that were used for cleansing God's people for the wedding ceremony, for this institution. And Jesus brings cleansing to that process, to that institution. The miracle at Cana was a, a private sign for his disciples and the servants who filled up those jars. And now this week, we see Jesus bringing cleansing and purification again, now to what institution? The temple. This is the second Jewish institution that Jesus enters into, and he totally turns on its head, revealing how he is the fulfillment of the temple system. Now Jesus will perform this second sign, right, not in private, like the wedding, at the wedding in Cana, but in a very public place that is so central to the life of Israel, it will reverberate throughout the nation. So, quickly, I want to address something. You may notice that, for some reason, John records this story at the beginning of his gospel. And this story, Jesus at the temple, is in the other synoptic gospels, um, but it's at the very end of Jesus' ministry, not at the beginning. What gives? Here's what's going on. John places the temple scene at the beginning of the ministry, and it seems strange to our modern, sort of linear, rational brains. Here's the thing, though. Hebrew literature was not concerned about the chronology of events. And you've got to get this to be a good reader of the scriptures, that our, our, we are wired, thanks to post-modernity and rational thought, which is a good thing, but we are wired to see things as if it's going to be accurate, it must be placed in the correct order. John is not concerned with accuracy about the chronology of events. He's concerned about getting you to understand the significance of Jesus in this moment. And so he wants us to see from the beginning that Jesus is the true temple of God, that For a while, 
The temple where God rested, where he dwelt, where his glory was seen, was in a physical location, in a building, in a structure. But now the, God himself comes, the presence of God comes in the person of Jesus. And so John is concerned, not with the order of events, but with us seeing where Jesus' significance in this story comes from. John is not trying to be unbiased reporting, right? That's just not his concern. He's upfront with us about wanting to arrange things in a specific way so that, right, what does he say at the end of the book? So that you will believe in the name of Jesus, that you will trust in Jesus. He's all about getting us to see Jesus as he really is. So don't let that spook you. Now, we see Jesus cleansing and both cleansing and replacing the temple. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews is at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The temple scene here is described in in a little bit more detail than it is in the Synoptic Gospels. We have little details like, you know, that they were both animals and people were driven out with the whip. Um, Money changers' tables were both overturned and their coins scattered on the ground. And then there was orders. Orders are given to carry out of the temple these birds that are in cages. So the merchants that were at the temple, right, their primary offense was that of disrupting Gentile worship. Right? The way the temple was set up was that there were these outer courts surrounding sort of the main structure that is the temple where God himself dwelt inside. And so the Gentiles, those who were not of Jewish heritage, right, were able to come and worship Yahweh, but they were basically restricted to these outer courts. Where did, they, where did these merchants set up shop? Right there in the outer courts. The temple establishment had amassed excessive wealth in Jesus' day, which made the merchants and the money changers part of a system that exploited the poor for the alleged purpose of beautifying, right, making the temple more beautiful and administering the affairs of the temple. And so the sale of sacrificial animals and money exchange should have been facilitated near the temple, but not within its walls. Now keep in mind that the Jerusalem temple Right? What is it? It's a symbol of heaven and earth meeting. Right? The structure was a physical representation to the nations of who and what the Jews, God's people, were all about. For God's people, this was where heaven and earth met. And the original temple now was built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, fun name to say. Later, not long before the time of Jesus of Nazareth, it was renovated by King Herod. And Herod fancied things looking fancy. So he, made, he fixed it up real nice. Um, and half, after his influence, the temple was renowned for its magnificence. 
even rabbis of the day, who were no friends of Herod, who wanted nothing to do with him, had to admit this temple was beautiful. They say, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful thing. The temple was extravagant, and much of the money was used to further intensify its beauty. One commentator says, in Jesus' day, the temple, once a glorious symbol of God's dwelling with his people, had degenerated into a place of uh, commerce and perfunctory ritual. Word of the week, perfunctory. Any word that has funk in the middle of it is a good word. Okay? Translation, because I didn't know off the top of my head what that word meant either. The people had lost intentionality with their worship to Yahweh, and they had turned the place where heaven and earth met into a marketplace. So Jesus' indignation, right, his righteous anger, because Jesus is, he's not just kind of upset, he's angry here, right? It's all about taking place in the temple courtyard where these Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship freely. And it's more than fair. The only place the Gentiles could worship Yahweh was in these outer courts. And so you've got, you've got to imagine these outer courts, the Gentiles are able to worship, but they're not, they're not allowed to go all the way into the temple. And then you've got these Jews on pilgrimage, right, coming in. And where do they pass through to get inside the temple? They pass through the outer courts. So it's already a place that's kind of distracting. And now you add in money changers, animals for sale, and it literally becomes a zoo. Literally. Like, and so what do, we, what do we see in that, right? We see Jesus so angered by that because his heart is for the marginalized. His heart is for the outsider. His heart is for the Gentile. Right? His heart for, his, is for all people, but there's a special longing to see the, the one who's far from God brought in. And to see God's people, his own servants, totally overlooking those who are right in front of them, angers Jesus. Jesus was angry at the attempt to reduce worship to an act on the altar. Remember, there was a long journey for these people. Several days in the Torah, they're commanded for the Passover, right, to raise a lamb or goat, to find the best one that you possibly can out of the, the litter, and to keep it, to raise it to maturity, um, and to then sacrifice it as a symbol of God's judgment and forgiveness of their sins. And it doesn't say that they're not allowed to buy and sell. But it seems like, even though it doesn't say it, God had something in mind when he asked his people to raise up this lamb and then to bring it with you to the Passover celebration. And it would have required his people some level of sacrifice. It would have cost them something, both to, to buy and to raise, but, but then to, to, to transport it all that way to keep it clean. And so now we get to this, this moment, right? 
it's way more convenient. It's way easier to just buy it there. But what about the unintended consequences of minimizing worship, right, that moment, to, to just the act on the altar? Is the convenience of buying and selling animals at the temple stopping you from experiencing the worship of Yahweh? That's the question God is asking his people. What if God knew what he was doing, though, when he commanded them to bring that sacrifice? What if he knew that Passover would cost them something, and it wouldn't be easy, and it wasn't supposed to necessarily be easy? What if having to sacrifice your best, most perfect, unblemished sheep or goat that you raised, what if that convenience, of the, rather the inconvenience of having to transport it all that way to Jerusalem was as much a part of the act of worship as the moment that the animal is actually sacrificed at the temple? I think there's something there for us. What does it look like, I wonder, in our context? Because it's not about learning more things for the Jews. It's not about doing things the exact perfect way. It's about God wanting to see his people recognize that their worship of him is not just one singular week. It's not the Passover week. It's not just that moment. That they're called to worship Yahweh day in and day out through their daily rhythms. It extends far beyond the altar. I wonder for us, if giving money to organizations, or we just heard from a missionary, and I'm not at all trying to discourage giving to our missionaries in any way, so please don't hear that. But I wonder, given our affluence in our country, if giving money to organizations or missionaries without having anything in your own life about you actively seeking to care for the orphan or the widow or the foreigner, if that's what God wanted for us, if that's what he meant when he said, seek, serve, love the outsider, the foreigner, the widow. I wonder if the convenience of being able to just click a couple buttons on PayPal, right, to send a transaction, to send that money, um, is what God had in mind for us. Do we just end up paying others to do what God has called each of us to do with our own two hands? Because hear me, it's not bad to give to organizations and to missionaries. Yes and amen, do that. But if that's the only way that you engage with the foreigner or the widow or the outsider, maybe you're missing out on what God has called us to and what worship really is. The reality for many of us, we probably aren't really fully aware of the unintended consequences of our giving. At the risk of lowering how much you give to Central Bible financially, if your giving justifies your lack of involvement uh, in the community, right? Or in, or in the small ways that we can meet our neighbors, like through Love Montevilla and things like that, maybe you're missing out on what God's heart is when he calls you to give sacrificially. If we're not careful, our worship can easily devolve into making life a little bit easier, a little bit more convenient. Our hearts on Sunday mornings, right, are going to be ready for worship. In this event, when we see our daily rhythms to Jesus as worshipful moments, day in 
and day out. When our day-to-day includes acts of compassion, then when we come to Sunday morning, it is a true celebration of worship to what God has been doing in and through us throughout the week. But if you limit worship to just singing songs, writing a check, and listening to a sermon, you will miss out. And I wonder, why do we struggle with this? Why does this hit us this way? Why is it so difficult for us to not see our whole lives this way? Um, Seeing worship this way is incredibly difficult for us because we struggle to see our faith as something that Jesus wants throughout our entire life, throughout our whole life. That following Jesus isn't something we do in segmented events, but is rather a whole new way of being, a whole new way of life. Right? In this very passage, Jesus is declaring himself as the resting place of God's glory. The manifest presence of God is, is in Jesus. The physical temple is no longer where these place will take up resident, these things will take up residence. God tabernacles among us in Jesus coming to earth and through the Spirit. This means then that every moment, every errand, every inconvenience and discomfort is done alongside Jesus as he is in us. He's not just a set of beliefs or a weekly spiritual event. He's a totally new way of life. We tend to forget that Jesus and our apprenticeship is a whole new way of life because we're so, I think, and many others, I think the reason we forget this so quickly is because we're so stinking busy. It's really difficult to take a mindful approach to following Jesus in a moment-to-moment basis when you've got so many responsibilities and things coming at you, whether it's information, technology, you name it, your work, right? We have Sundays, we've got home communities maybe, maybe a devotional time, but then we put that kind of in its own box, we close that up, and then we open our, our family box, or we open our or work box, and we we compartmentalize our life because it's easier to digest that way. But maybe because following Jesus is actually a new way of life, he's calling us to slow down so that we can be mindful, intentional in the daily rhythms at work, in that conversation, outside, with my neighbor, etc., What can we learn from the Amish? In his book on overcoming the urge to hurry, John Mark Comer writes this. We idealize the Amish in ways I assume are unhealthy, but it's worth saying they aren't actually all against modern technology. This is what the Amish do. When a new technology comes into society, they evaluate it from the sidelines. They watch us like scientists watch lab rats with a new drug. Does it make us healthier or sick? Is it a net positive or no? They let us volunteer for the human trial. Then they have a community-wide conversation. In the case of the car, for example, the invention of the, the motor vehicle, they decided against it on the grounds that it would destroy their tight-knit community and give life to consumerism, both of which uh, eat away at love 
joy, and peace. To be a fly on the wall when they discuss the smartphone. But the Amish and other serious followers of Jesus remind us, there was a time when life was much, much slower. There were no cars to drive, planes to catch, all-night study marathons to caffeinate our way through, no constant streams of alerts on our phones, no bottomless holes of entertainment options in our queues. Isn't that helpful? God wants us to live a new way of life in Jesus. And that life, I think, calls us to slow down so that we don't repeat the same thing that our forefathers did, which is to reduce worship down to a moment or to an event or to a community group, but to see every single day, whether it's something like a menial task like doing the dishes, and my little girl comes up to me and says, can I help you? And I'm like, this would take probably 20 more minutes if I say yes, I need to. I need to slow down. I need to have margin in my life if I'm going to care for the marginalized. You know? You've got to have space in your life to care for the outsider. If you don't have that margin, you won't, it will, you'll never have it. I can't tell you. I get to, you know, uh, serve alongside Oshawa and whoever else preaches. We, we go to the Tuesday morning Bible study and we talk and a lot of the people that attend that are, are older, retired folks. And they said time and time again, you know what? I thought when I retired, life would get slower and less busy. It's getting busier. It sometimes is harder. We find ways, man, to fill the gaps. And I think there's something here that Jesus wants us to see. Slow down. What is the impact that this commitment or this technology is going to have on your daily rhythms and allowing you to be mindful to worship me and serve me throughout the day. And so I want to ask, what does God want you to slow down on? What does God want you to slow down on? Give time and attention to and bring to him in an act of worship. What is he inviting you to identify, to give time and attention and particular care to in 2020 to offer to him as a sacrifice at the end of this year? Is there anything that you need to cut in order to create the time and space so that you can hear him and listen? I know that this is really difficult to do, and it's especially difficult if you try to do this by yourself. Don't try to do this by yourself. God has called us to serve him and apprentice him together in community. So I want to encourage you, Sign up to be a part of a home community if you're not in one. Sign up to be a part of a formation group. Apprentice Jesus with others. Quickly, look down here at verse 18. So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Notice that the Jews here, who questioned Jesus after seeing this dramatic scene unfold, I mean, imagine how intense that must have been. 
to see Jesus flipping over tables and driving people out with a whip, right? So after seeing this scene unfold, they don't seem to ask themselves what responsibility they have in what Jesus was doing, why he was upset. They don't ask themselves if he was justified in what he did. They're more concerned with what authority Jesus uses to do these things. Also notice that if they thought Jesus was a lunatic or emotionally unstable, they could have easily had him arrested for these actions, like with no, with no problem. But for some reason, they don't. And the fact that they request a sign from him is probably, at the very least, it shows that they had a suspicion that this man, this, this person, might actually be a prophet from God. And so, to close out, I want us to, to close our time thinking about Jesus that his body is the true temple, that he is the fulfillment of this temple institution, right? It says, go ahead and destroy this temple. And that has kind of a double meaning. I'll I'll quickly cover. It refers to both Herod's great buildings, right, which would in fact be destroyed in 70 AD. And it it refers to Jesus' body that would be nailed to the cross. There will be a renewed temple, God says, a place where he dwells, where sin is taken away through the offering of a sacrifice, not of sheep, not of oxen, but of Jesus himself, the one who is both the priest and the sacrifice, the victim. Psalm 69, 9 says that, for zeal for your house has consumed me, which is what Jesus is quoting, and the reproaches of those who approach you have fallen on me, right? This is a messianic psalm, God speaking about him taking on the sins of his people. Jesus' zeal was so great, his desire to see God's presence come down to earth and not just dwell in him, but through the Holy Spirit be brought to each one of us, right? You think about that day at Pentecost when the Spirit came down. That's only made possible if Jesus is robustly committed to going to the cross, as our perfect lamb, as our sacrifice for our sin and our brokenness. That is how he fulfills this second institution and the the sign of him both, right? Destroy this building, this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up because Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back to bring new life. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and um, Jesus, we... We recognize that you are the fulfillment of these things and we long to understand more fully where we might be prone to compromise our worship, where we might be prone to categorize things, compartmentalize, and make following you... uh, couple of events a week um, because it's just easier to digest because we're so busy. God, that's, we want to move away from that and, and it's really difficult. Jesus, we ask you now for your help. Spirit, would you help us? Reveal to us and show us where we're prone to do that, where we're prone to compartmentalize, to make our faith not a way of life, but a moment or two a week. Would you reveal to us where we're prone to do that? And would you help us to lean into your spirit 
to become people who are more mindful, more intentional, more aware in our daily rhythms. Make us a people who have margin for the marginalized. In Jesus' name, amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.